Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Cherisky. The blue of our blue planet is Earth's defining feature, but we don't generally hear much about what's going on beneath the surface. And we are missing out, not just on the fascinating ways that life has adapted to a watery world, or the immensity of the ocean engine that keeps our planetary systems running. What we're missing out on is the perspective that we are inhabitants of an ocean world, and everything that happens down there is linked to us up here. And that's what this podcast series is all about. If you ask someone where the most beautiful places in the ocean are, they'll inevitably suggest tropical coral reefs conjuring up images of bright blue water with sunlight glinting off the stunning natural architecture of the corals. There are colourful fish of all sizes bustling around, defending their territory and feeding. The huge antenna of lobsters poking out from their hiding places. And maybe, just maybe, if you're lucky, you'll spot a camouflaged octopus. Coral reefs like these are some of the most diverse ecosystems in the world. They're special places in the ocean, covering less than 1% of the seafloor, but home to nearly a quarter of all ocean species at some point in their life cycle. Corals themselves, the master builders that make all of this possible, are actually tiny animals. The reef builders are just one of two types. This type has a hard skeleton, which they attach on top of older coral exoskeletons, constructing the wonderful shapes that we see one tiny brick at a time. The other type are the soft corals. They look a bit more like plants, although they are still animals. The main fuel for many corals is sunlight, so we generally find them relatively close to the surface, within the top 40 to 50 metres. But animals can't use sunlight directly, and so the sun-fueled corals need a teammate to do the harvesting, and these are tiny algae called zooxanthellae. It's this combination that makes corals both colourful and physically strong and robust. The coral animal provides the algae with a safe environment with easy access to everything they need to photosynthesize. In return, the algae produces oxygen and energy that the coral can use. It's a beautiful, mutually beneficial relationship. But like all relationships, external stresses have the potential to make it all go wrong. For example, if water temperatures rise, the zooxanthellae speed up their sun harvesting, and that means that more oxygen is produced. But too much oxygen is toxic to the coral, so it ejects the algae in self-defence, and when they go, they take their colourful pigments with them. The coral becomes pale, and this is the process of bleaching. The coral animals may still be alive, but they are severely weakened. We've already lost 50% of reefs around the world to all these multiple threats. And there are predictions that at 1.5 degrees, we will still lose 70 to 90% of all coral reefs globally. We'll look down as we're swimming and you'll just see these upside down corals that you know have got juveniles underneath that are then dead. And that's the bigger issue now. Scientists from the Bertarelli Foundation's Marine Science Programme have shown the devastating effects of back-to-back heat waves in the Indian Ocean. In the Chagos Archipelago, coral cover was reduced by 60% in 2016 and by a further 30% in 2017, 
However, their results also suggested that some coral species have a higher resilience to rising temperatures, and that offers some tiny windows of hope for the future. Coral expert Dr. Bry Wilson from the University of Oxford visited the region last year and recorded the moment he returned from a very special dive. We've just got back from Middle Brother Lagoon, so we've moved up through the, the atoll now, and uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm speechless. It's, it's, I don't really know what to say. I, I dropped down and, and, you know, one of the things we have a bunch of different things that we're trying to look for, uh, different parts of research that we want to investigate. And, and I focused today on looking for, for colonies of, of bleach corals, desperate to find them, but uh, jumped into the water and, and swam across this wonderful sheltered lagoon. And there it was. There, a tonella? This, this, this little coral? I mean, these things weren't seen in lagoons. Um, the ones we saw last year were found in these very high energy kind of parts of the reef uh, uh, where we think the, the water temperature in these, these warming waters was kept low by the kind of the current coming through. The, the conditions were slightly better for these corals and that's why they'd survived. And, and there below us were just, just loads of these tonella colonies. It was, it was seeing this, this coral that's Clusters essentially locally extinct. It's not meant to be here. And, and this little sheltered lagoon, there was 15, 20 colonies of this incredibly beautiful little brain coral. <laughs> Just an incredible thing to see. The Chagos Archipelago hosts the world's largest living coral atoll, the Great Chagos Bank, a staggering 60,000 square kilometres of shallow limestone reefs, and about 300 seamounts and abyssal habitats, all surrounded by some of the world's cleanest seas. This makes it a critical hub for coral species diversity in the middle of the Indian Ocean, acting as a stepping stone between east and west. When Bry got back to the UK, I had a chat to him about his experiences, and he explained that while corals all around the world have taken a hit recently, the Chagos Archipelago is in a better state than other reefs. This location, which is one of the most remote coral systems in the world, is almost unique in that its isolation means that the only effects that we essentially see are those of global climate change. There's no extra human stresses that we would find in other reef systems, like overfishing or pollution. I mean, it certainly isn't pristine. I, I don't think there are any pristine environments left on the planet because of our kind of influence. But this is probably as close as it gets to being a pristine environment. In a reef like this, there's obviously lots of different types of corals. So are there different species within there that are playing different roles to, to make up the structure of the reef? Oh, very, very much. Chagos Archipelago has around about, we think, about 300 species. That potentially could have been more historically, but that's kind of what we see when we go down there now. And the ones that I'm particularly interested in, I suppose, are the ones that form the major kind of reef structure. And these are the Acropora. And then you have some wonderful kind of corals that, that aren't sessile, that aren't stuck to the reef and actually float, you know, kind of roll about freely on the reef floor. And, and they're some of my favourites. All right. So let's come to a problem for any sessile creature, which means you don't move. Now, things often, many species, certainly corals, reproduce sexually. And that means... They need to find another one. Now, if you're sessile, then finding another one is quite hard. So how do corals get around that problem? Well, again, corals are bewildering in their, I suppose, in their complexity and diversity. And, and so generally we classify, I suppose, stony corals into two types, which is broadcast spawners and brooding corals. And the broadcast spawners generally are, are separate sexes. 
And that's where you have a male coral and a, and a female coral. And the male corals produce sperm and the female corals produce eggs. And of course, as you say, they're sessile, they can't move. And so when they want to reproduce, they send out these plumes of their reproductive material. And, and that's when we see this incredible natural event, this, this coral spawning. Brooders, however, they uh, tend to be hermaphrodites, so both sexes contain within the same colony, and they will actually fertilize internally and release essentially kind of complete coral larvae, which are, are then free to, to settle. And that's when, of course, the larval form finds a place to settle down and, and build a home of its own. The coral spawning events are known as some of these, these amazing things, but there's a problem here which is that you're a coral, you can't move, you can't look at what's going on around you. You need to know when to broadcast your eggs or your sperm so that they meet the ones from the other coral just down the road. How do they do this? How, how can you possibly coordinate as stationary animals in that way? Well, this is, uh, I mean, this is the, the big question and there's a lot of incredible research going around the world to try and unravel exactly what happens. And, and I feel like we're, we're getting closer and we're, we're certainly closer than we've ever been to really understanding this. We know that a major factor is the lunar cycle. And most of the corals, well, certainly the broadcast spawning corals, for which it's so important to, to maximise their chances of fertilisation, generally tend to do this within three to five days of the full moon. And we think this is because this is when tidal conditions are, are absolutely, oceanic conditions are at their, their absolute most perfect. So still, it sounds like there's still quite a lot of mystery with the, uh, the spawning and the reproduction. Now, you're clearly someone who is very enthusiastic about corals in general. You are very enthusiastic about hard corals in particular. And then there is one particular species of coral called Tanella. And we heard a clip of you finding some colonies of this earlier. Now, tell us what Tanella is and why is it that of all your enthusiasms, this one is the one that shines out above the rest? Oh, well, you know, Tanella is, is extraordinarily special because it's only found in this very, very tiny part of the world. And therefore, when it, when it goes locally extinct, it's essentially globally extinct. It looks like a beautiful underwater charismatic brain. It's, and, you know, if there is anything more exciting than a brain stuck to the seafloor, I've yet to, you know, I don't want to know, to be fair. You know, the sharks, I can take them or leave them. But the, the giant underwater brain, I mean, it really fires this up for me. And several decades ago, you dive down and, and Charles Shepard, who's been leading the surge on these things, you know, tells me these stories of, of, you know, bopping your head underwater and seeing 50 to 100 of these up to a meter across brains scattered across the seafloor. And my first expedition in 2019, we were down three weeks, two dives a day, and we found six. And they were the most unhealthy looking little fragments, you know, kind of pale shadows of their former selves. But then on the most recent expedition, we were in a lagoon, we were low on air, we were getting close to the point we needed to surface. And as I was coming across, we, we saw this, you know, this little brain in the depths. And then there was another next to it. And then two more further on. And, and of course, probably the worst time for me to become excited because I started gulping my air down like a child and, and I was giddy. I mean, it really was the most incredible experience. And yeah, nothing's ever going to be able to take that uh, away from me. It was a very special time, I have to say. Well, let's come back to the current state of the Chagos Archipelago, even though, as you've said, this is basically in as good a state as you can expect for reefs on Earth at the moment. It's not in a perfect condition. So right now on the Chagos Archipelago, what proportion of the reef is alive? And, and is it, are things getting better or worse? 
we, you know, we had this event in 2015, 2016, where we saw this real ramping up of ocean temperatures in the, in the Indian Ocean region. And, and we saw a lot of mortality there, a lot of paling. And, and what we were seeing was these huge table corals that had died. And then the next generation of young corals had settled on them. And the hard part there is that once these corals die, the skeletons then begin to be eroded. And, and, and one of the big worries that we find, and we, we saw actually a, a number of times out there, was that the big storms will roll in and they'll hit these dead coral tables that have got these juveniles on top and they'll snap them off at the neck. These coral tables will roll off into the, this deeper water and we'll look down as we're swimming and you'll just see these upside down corals that you know have got juveniles underneath that are then dead. And, and that's the bigger issue now. And finally, you know, you're clearly putting a lot of research, time and effort and thought into these ecosystems and this this species of coral and coral reefs in general. What's next up for your research? What what can you do to try and understand all this and maybe maybe change the future? Well, one of the things that we're looking at at the moment is is the mechanisms by which by which corals bleach and if we can try and understand that I suppose kind of the holy grail for coral biology is being able to be able to assess when a bleaching event is going to occur. When we see bleached corals, that's essentially a symptom of the coral stress, but it's usually too far gone at that point to be able to do anything. And so one of the things we're thinking is that if we can anticipate when a coral is going to be stressed, there are potential mitigation strategies that we can uh, we can put in place. Yeah, it's a really exciting time to be involved with this particular project. To find out more about Dr. Bry Wilson's work, visit the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. We've heard that corals are home to spectacular biodiversity, so much so that they're often referred to as the rainforests of the sea. But they're expensive and difficult to get to, increasingly fragile, and nobody wants to disturb them more than necessary. So it's good to hear that there are ways for scientists to study corals without even getting their feet wet. The Natural History Museum in London has a gigantic library of coral specimens that all have stories to tell, not just about what's happening now, but stories of the past as well. They've got 100,000 modern coral specimens, and for fossil corals it's closer to 5 million, collected over the last 200 years. Ken Johnson studies the history of coral reefs, and he showed me around the collection at the Natural History Museum's off-site store. Like Bry, he's a big fan of brain coral, but we took a look at a few more of his favourite corals. And when I stepped inside the store, it was clear that this is a treasure trove. It's a huge space with rows and rows of white cabinets, filled with the astonishing richness of the ocean world, tidily catalogued and waiting to be discovered. These are dry skeletons of corals. I love this moment of like opening the doors. It's very theatrical, all the things behind it. So what type of coral is this? These are Acroporas. So this is a, one of the most diverse genera of corals. There's hundreds of species and it, it's very diverse. And it branches and it grows very, very fast. And so by growing fast, it actually builds the reef up quite quickly relative to other types of corals. So these corals have sort of long, thin branches that does what it says on the tin, but they branch out and they branch out and then they've got these tiny little 
coral polyps, I guess, on the end. So what's the advantage to a coral in being this shape rather than the shape of a brain coral? Well, Acropora special, it grows, some of these branching corals can grow up to 10 centimeters a year, which is incredibly fast. One of the nice things about branching corals is they can reproduce by fragmenting. So like a tree, if you break off a bit of the tree, you can root it and it will keep growing. Similarly for these, so if the branch falls off, it will just grow a new colony. So they reproduce by fragmenting as well as by sexual reproduction. So corals come in lots of different shapes and types. We've talked about the branching corals. How about the others? Well, this kind of coral is very interesting, one of my favorites. It's what's called a free-living coral. Now, most corals are attached to the seafloor, and they, they grow and they stay in place. Whereas there's many types of corals, particularly this family, the Fungidae, which attach when they're very, very small, but once they reach a certain size, they break off. And so they're, they're not attached to the ocean floor. They're free-living corals. So the ones we're looking at, this one is about the size of a small cat that's asleep. It's, sort of like, it's, a, it's an oval shape. It's kind of long and thin. It's got these amazing little spiked walls that are covering them. And you just turned one over. Do that again, because that was amazing. And underneath, it's hollow, which is just... Because I just always assume that corals are you know, kind of solid. And this one is like a bowl. You turn it over, it's kind of bowl-shaped underneath. That, that's to keep it light, so it grows up off the, uh, off the seafloor. When they're small, they actually can move around. They can walk. And when you flip them upside down, they can roll themselves back over again. And if they get buried in some sediment, they can dig themselves back the out again. The idea of a coral going for a walk is my favorite idea of the week by miles. <laughs> so, okay, so you've got all these amazing cabinets it's all really interesting to look at but what sort of research can you do now on these specimens from you know sort of nearly 50 years ago in some of these cases well these coral skeletons hold records of of the life of the animal and the habitats and the environments in which it was living so you can look and reconstruct the environments and you can reconstruct the health of the coral we have a CT scanner here in the museum, and if you put these in X-ray CT scans, you, you can see how the density varies within the colony. And corals grow with annual density bands, similar to tree rings. So you can have pairs of high-density, low-density bands. Each one is a, is a year's growth. And so you can see, wow, was the coral growing fast? Was it growing slow? You can also see episodes of stress where the coral may have stopped growing or even died partially and then grew back. And so we can reconstruct the history of the coral reefs from the 1960s and 70s by looking at these collections. So a CT scan will give you a three-dimensional data, and you see inside as well. It's not just the outside. That's right. A C- a C- it's an X-ray, so it's just like when you go to the doctor and get an X-ray. You get a three-dimensional view, a model of the colony, of the skeleton of the colony. You can see all sorts of the holes and the growth rates and other features. And typically, what you'd have to do is go and pick them out by hand. But instead, we're trying to develop automated techniques so we can collect much, much more data. So if we could CT scan thousands and thousands of colonies that we have in our collection here, we could automate the process of extracting this data and use it to reconstruct the history of coral reefs living throughout the world. It's just, it's astonishing that they can have been sitting here for decades and yet still there are modern techniques which can tell us yet more. It's it's a lovely thing. New techniques for old colonies. That's why museum collections are so important is because they're archives, historical archives that we can apply new and evolving technology to. I'm so grateful to the Natural History Museum for showing me around. There is no way to sugarcoat this. Earth's coral reefs are dying. 
And the loss isn't just about the corals themselves. They provide a vital home to lots of other species. The entire environment those species live in is changing. This is the sound of a healthy reef from a study by Professor Steve Simpson at the University of Exeter. It's alive with fish and crustaceans, sea stars and snapping shrimp, to name just a few, which produce sounds for a variety of reasons, to help navigate, to find food, and importantly, to attract a mate. But human interference, such as mining, construction, and fishing, makes it harder for the life within these reefs to be heard. The sounds of the reefs are getting lost in a fog of noise. It's really difficult, as a human, to listen to these lists of problems. But it's important, because in the long term, it's only by facing up to it and learning about it that we stand any chance of minimising the damage and of protecting these amazing ecosystems. There is a lot we can do to improve the prognosis. It is definitely not time to give up yet. David Abora is a coral scientist working in Mombasa, Kenya, and he's the founder of Cordio East Africa. He studies the coral reefs in the Western Indian Ocean and how they're impacted by climate change and fishing to learn how to save and restore them. He told me about the changes he's seen over his lifetime. I mean, I've been a coral reef scientist for 30 years now. And the changes that have happened to reefs in that time are just, I mean, it, it's mind-boggling how much we've lost in that time and how quickly it's happening. I did my PhD in the early 90s, and I was looking at reefs here in East Africa and looking at sediment stress on reefs and looking at local impacts like that. And then by the end of the 90s, in 1998, it was the first global bleaching event that affected reefs all around the world. But in our region, we were perhaps the most impacted by that. And we probably lost 30% of our corals in that one event. At a local level, you know, we might have had 90% of corals dying, but overall 30%. And the reefs have never recovered from that. They've sort of continued at a level, some recovering, some declining further because of other impacts. And then in 2016, we had a next massive bleaching event like that. And then another step decline in, in the health of corals. So we're seeing this happening faster and faster. And these global changes are just accelerating. They're coming on bigger and stronger than ever before. We hear a lot about, you know, targets, especially, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement and this agreement to hold global warming to two degrees or 1.5 degrees. If humanity turns everything around and does manage to hold global temperatures to 1.5 degrees of increase, and, you know, it's not looking very likely at the moment. What will that do to the coral reefs? Because I guess that's the best case scenario, right? Yeah, so 1.5 degrees warming is the best possible case for coral reefs. Uh, and to achieve that, we have to do everything within the next 10 years to be able to make that happen, or else we'll pass the point of, of no return and, and things will warm further than that. But there's a lot of warming already locked in at 1.5 degrees. Right now, we're at a little bit over one degree globally, so it's another half degree of warming. We've already lost 50% of reefs around the world to all these multiple threats. And there are predictions that at 1.5 degrees, we will still lose 70 to 90% of all coral reefs globally. So that's not a good future for coral reefs, but it's the best possible one. And so we really need to do everything we can to achieve that. Because if we don't, 
you know, at two degrees, which is only another half degree beyond that, the estimates are that we'll lose 99% of coral reefs. So less than 1% will remain at two degrees warming. You've said that there were these two, you know, massive events. Um, but how geographically spread is this? Is it the case that these bleaching events happen across the whole world all at once? How bad is it all at the same time? Yes. Yeah, so these coral bleaching events are a very complex phenomenon. What's happening with warming or global warming is that you have this spatially huge stress event, a big warm pool of water, hundreds or thousands of kilometers across, sweeps into a coral reef area and causes bleaching over a large regional area. Now, not all corals will bleach. Some will be in slightly cooler pockets because of the currents and the tides, or maybe they're shaded. So it's not uniform in a place. And then also these bleaching events, because they follow these big seasonal cycles, the, the local summer is the highest risk period for, for high temperatures. So in 2015 to 2017, we had this third global bleaching event, we've called it. And in some places like the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, reefs there bleached in different parts, but they bleached every one of those three years. They were massively stressed by high temperatures. In our region, in the West Indian Ocean, we bleached in 2016. And perhaps because in 1998, we already lost all the weaker corals. So the survivors and their offspring are the ones that populate the reefs now. And they appear to be tougher than they were before. So they bleached one of the years, not, not all three. So it varies a lot from place to place. What does that say about the potential for these corals to adapt? Is it all happening too quickly or is there the potential for a small number of corals to kind of keep on fighting through and so there, will, there might be some corals left even in the worst case? Well, that's true. I mean, corals and all species on a reef are natural species. They all have the capacity to evolve and adapt at certain rates. And reefs in some ways are incredibly resilient to all of the threats that impose on them from cyclones and warming events and things like that. And But, you know, over here we have on the East African coast, maybe 300, 350 species of corals right now. The resistant species may number about 100 or 50 or 60. So we lose an immense diversity and library of genetic information that has evolved for, you know, hundreds and millions of years to what it is today. Okay, so let's turn to what we can actually do about this in order to avoid the worst of the consequences you're talking about. Are there any quick, easy wins? And what are the big things that we really need to get going on now in order to have a better future for our coral ecosystems? Unfortunately, there's no quick, easy wins anymore. But I mean, the first thing we have to do is to stop kicking out greenhouse gases, CO2 and methane and other gases like that into the atmosphere, because that's what's driving the warming that will undermine everything else that we might do in the next few decades. So we have to do that. Stopping the, the transformation of food webs and the processes that structure a reef. And fish are very important and herbivores are really important for mediating what happens between coral and algae and other species that live on the bottom. One thing that's happened with a lot of land species certainly is that people have tried reintroduction programs. And, you know, you see it with tree planting schemes and that kind of thing. It's fine. We'll get some going and then we'll put them in the habitat and off they'll go and they'll be, you know, they'll build the next generation. But you don't hear about people breeding coral reefs very often. Now, tell us why that is and what the why it is that this isn't the solution to the problem. Well, we yet. don't yeah, <laughs> we don't hear about people restoring or breeding corals yet because we can't do it on a scale that makes a difference. There is in fact a huge amount of research 
where we're trying to play catch up with what you can do with forests and, and grasslands in terms of restoration. But there are immense challenges in doing it with coral reefs or in the sea. And the principal one is just our ability to act at scale in the sea is very limited. Right now, the main effort has been people physically going out and planting corals down on the bottom. And we can restore, you know, an area the size of a tennis court or maybe even getting up towards an acre or a hectare now. But, you know, a reef system is tens of thousands of hectares. But there's a lot of research happening. And, and the key thing is we need to invest in that research and we have to do it now. What's your sense for where we're going here? Is, is there enough hope that humanity is going to get this right? Or do we really have to fight a lot harder to stand any chance? We've done so much damage already and it's locked in that um, optimism isn't really the right sort of frame, I think. But realism is. And I think the key thing is that Nature is very resilient, um, even with a very transformed planet, which it is, nature can still be very healthy and adapt around us. And we have to give it the greatest chance to do that so that we can have all of these benefits rather than, you know, just letting it be as bad as it can be. And then, you know, not only does nature suffer a lot, but people will suffer a lot at that point. So I'm a realist and I think we can do it. I think if anything, COVID has shown us that we can make immense changes uh, and not just make decisions based on dollar values. So we just need to do it for climate change and other things now too. We really have to learn how to pull back and really give, give reefs a chance. When it comes to the natural world, there are some foundations on which everything else rests, and coral reefs are one of them. We've now pushed coral reefs almost to the edge, past the point where their resilience alone can fix things. But if we get our behaviour right now, if we give the reefs a chance then they themselves become a seed that can grow back to become something that the rest of the ocean world can rely on. Without them, the other ocean challenges become even bigger. But by protecting the reefs now, we make all the other problems easier to solve. And of course, we get to share some of the most stunning and surprising places in the ocean with future generations. There is a lot we can do, and the time to do it is now. Thank you to Bri Wilson, Ken Johnson and David Obora. Next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be exploring how seabirds can help save our seas and in turn, why we need to save them. Ocean Matters is a fresh air production from the Bertarelli Foundation. If you have a moment, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now so you never miss an episode. <laughs>